Hello, my name is Kira and I'm a solicitor in the Clark's Legal Employment Team. I'm joined by Sana, a trainee in our team, for today's podcast on redundancy and settlement agreements. Over the next few minutes, we will guide you through this tricky topic, covering what redundancy means for both employers and employees, and how settlement agreements work in practice. Let's first recap what a redundancy is. Put simply, a redundancy is a type of dismissal that occurs when a role is no longer needed. Sana, would you be able to expand on how the law sees redundancy? Thank you, Kira. Yes, there is a slightly more complex legal definition of a redundancy, which covers three types of situations. The first is where there is a business closure, for example, when a company stops trading. The second is where there is a workplace closure, so where a site or store closes. And the third is where there is a reduction in work of that particular kind, so there's a less need of a certain type of work to be done. In the UK, redundancy is one of the potentially fair reasons for dismissal, and employers may use this as a defence to an unfair dismissal claim. What kind of factors will need to be taken into account for a redundancy dismissal to be considered fair? Well, there are a few factors an employer should be aware of. Um, The redundancy must be genuine. There must be an appropriate pool for selection. The individuals in that pool must be consulted. An objective selection criteria also needs to be applied to those in the redundancy pool. Alternative employment that is suitable for the employee should be considered where appropriate. One thing to note is if an employer selects an employee for redundancy based on a protected characteristic, for example, age, gender, pregnancy, or being on maternity leave, or on the basis that they are a part-time or fixed-term worker, then the employer may face claims for discrimination or less favourable treatment. Employees have several rights that arise in a redundancy situation that employers must be mindful of. As Sana's just mentioned, employees must be consulted. This is because there's a right to individual consultation about their potential redundancy. This consultation has to be meaningful rather than treated as simply a tick box exercise. There's also a right to collective consultation in cases where 20 or more employees are to be made redundant in one establishment over a 90 day period. This is a separate requirement to the individual consultations and can carry potentially serious consequences for non-compliance. San has also mentioned alternative employment. If suitable roles are available elsewhere in the company, employers should offer this to the at-risk employees. Whether a role is suitable will depend on factors such as skill, responsibility, pay and location. Employees are entitled to their contractual notice, with employers required to comply with the statutory minimum notice period. And employees may also have additional rights depending on their length of service. Employees with more than two years service are entitled to time off to look for new work or to arrange training and they also have the right to receive a statutory redundancy payment and a contractual or enhanced redundancy payment if applicable. We often hear a lot about settlement agreements in relation to redundancies. What does this mean? A settlement agreement is an agreement between the employer and employee, um, and this sets out the terms that will cover the end of an employee's contract of employment. Um, They usually include a waiver of the employee's statutory and contractual claims in exchange for a payment. These settlement agreements are legally binding documents, and if one party breaches a settlement agreement, the other may bring a claim against them. Settlement agreements can be used in situations where the employee would be able to bring a claim in an employment tribunal, with the agreement preventing the employee from either starting this claim or taking one any further. Such agreements tend to be confidential. 
That makes sense. How do discussions around what the terms of a settlement agreement actually come about? Discussions about settlement agreements are known as protected conversations, and in redundancy situations, they tend to start before a dismissal takes place. You'd commonly see any written correspondence between the employee and the employer relating to settlement agreements marked as without prejudice. Sana, could you just take us through what this means? Sure. Without prejudice is a label that can be applied to documents where parties are making a genuine attempt to settle either existing or potential disputes. It prevents statements in this context from being used as evidence or admissions in court against the party that made them. Without prejudice conversations allow the parties to be more open with one another and are a useful tool in reaching agreements to achieve a resolution. Thanks, Sana. We also see the phrase without prejudice subject to contract. How does this differ? So the use of subject to contract means that nothing said during these without prejudice conversations will actually create a legally binding contract. All the terms must be agreed and signed by the parties in order for a contract to actually arise. It is common for settlement agreements to be offered in the course of a redundancy. They're voluntary, which means an employee has the chance to negotiate and may refuse to sign if the terms don't suit them. It may be the case that an employer provides the employee with a certain time frame to confirm their acceptance to terms. Payments that are offered under a settlement agreement are usually more generous than the statutory redundancy payments that employees may be entitled to, which can make them quite attractive options. If a settlement agreement is reached in a redundancy situation, employers can avoid the potentially lengthy consultation process as well as avoid future tribunal claims. Due to the confidential nature of settlement agreements, any terms agreed with the employee will not be disclosed to others. And other situations where a settlement agreement may be offered include where an employer wants to dismiss an employee for gross misconduct, but doesn't want to deal with any potential claim for unfair dismissal. So having now looked at what they are and the effects of entering into a settlement agreement, what happens if the terms can't be agreed? So employers are still free to go through the redundancy process if an employee rejects a proposed uh, settlement agreement. Employees may take advice on whether the redundancy has been done in a fair way and whether they may have any claims against the employer for unfair dismissal. This is why employees will look carefully at any potential payments offered in a settlement agreement. They may be able to receive a larger sum of compensation than the amounts being offered to them. All of these factors are important to consider when negotiating a settlement agreement. For example, if the redundancy situation is not genuine, employees may leverage the fact that they could have a claim for unfair dismissal in order to persuade the employer to increase the benefits under the agreement. As we're discussing payments and benefits, are these payments under a settlement agreement taxable? The first £30,000 of a termination payment is not taxable. However, anything above this threshold will be subject to tax in the usual way. Payment entitlements under the employment contract, such as salary, holiday pay, bonuses and pylons, will be taxable. We've talked a lot about the negotiations for settlement agreements. So let's now look into what the other terms of the agreement would actually look like. Sano, could you talk us through some of the standard terms that would be found in a settlement agreement? Of course. There's a few that will crop up time and again, which include the employer will pay the employee the outstanding balance for salary, bonuses, commission and holiday, as well as the termination payment, as we discussed. What date the employee's employment will actually end, whether the employee will work their notice 
or if they need to do a handover. What will happen to certain benefits, for example, share or health schemes, the company car, etc. Whether tax deductions are applicable and who bears the responsibility for further taxes. A clause covering legal fees and a clause stopping the employee from making derogatory comments about the employer, either in person or on social media. Settlement agreements can be complex, and while it's open to employees to negotiate these terms by themselves, many will turn to a solicitor to help negotiate certain points or to make legal arguments to their employer that supports their position. For a settlement agreement to be valid, employees must obtain independent legal advice. This is because employees must understand the effect of the settlement agreement on their rights and their ability to bring a claim against their employer. This is why one of the common terms of a settlement agreement is often a contribution towards the employee's legal fees. Involving solicitors in negotiations can also be useful in situations where the employee's first language is not English. It prevents the agreement from being challenged at a later date for reasons such as discrimination or that the employee signed under duress. Solicitors are also well placed to answer questions about the settlement agreement and thereby reduce the time and costs of reaching the agreement. Another clause commonly seen in settlement agreements is a confidentiality clause, which is a benefit for both parties. Neither side will be permitted to disclose the terms of a settlement agreement once agreed, subject to a few exceptions. Employees, for example, are usually permitted to tell their partner or spouse about the agreement and they can still speak to police or regulators about any criminal issues or misconduct. Confidentiality clauses also do not prevent employees from making protected disclosures, also known as whistleblowing. Employees are also normally allowed under the confidentiality clauses to confirm they were made redundant to potential recruiters and so they can speak to their future employers about this. Um, employees can also speak to insurers about uh, income protection claims. Given the potential complexities of the settlement agreement, ACAS guidance on the topic states that as a rule, employees should have a minimum of 10 calendar days to consider any proposed formal written terms and to take independent legal advice, unless the parties have agreed otherwise. We hope that this has helped to shed some light on this potentially tricky area of law. If you have any questions about anything we have discussed today, or need help with drafting or negotiating a settlement agreement, our experienced employment team will be more than happy to advise. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this podcast.